Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, Lieber Glücklich, Lieber Froh, wie das Bärchen Haribo. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com, and I'm joined by my co-host Simon, green stripes of gardening precision Maddox. I'm guessing, yeah. Simon, you've been out with the mower again. Yeah, I have. It's it's wonderful. It really is. We talk about mowing much more than I ever anticipated we would when we started this show. <laughs> But it's one of my favorite hobbies. It really is. I love it. It's so cathartic and soothing and relaxing. It's great. And my garden looks lovely. And it was the first chance I had today. It was the first day of no rain since we returned from holidays. The garden's looking lovely and green and, and, and positively ripe with all sorts of things. But the grass was in need of a trim. Uh, so that's done. Front and back, looking there ordinarily. And I'm sure the neighbourhood are all looking at me like, oh, oh, look at that. He's done a good cut. He's done a good cut. I do feel like your neighbours will be just interested to see what the Englishman's doing with his garden. I, I get that vibe from my neighbours. They're always looking over the fence mm. when I'm in the garden. And I'm like, hi, I'm just doing some gardening. But they're like <laughs> properly interested in whether I've mowed it like a cricket pitch or something. Um, mm. But mine's looking a bit shabby. We did the ivy the other week with a chainsaw, which is slightly terrifying. But uh, it's that's done. Get this right. So we had to go at the recycling hof, which is where mm -hmm. you take most recycling. Right, recycling hof in our area doesn't take plastic of any kind. So I'm like, okay, okay. they don't take gardening waste. And so we had wow. to drive to a different recycling hof that takes only gardening waste. And it cost <laughs> for every bucket that we had to dump, it cost us something like three euros. I think it ended up like twenty, really? yeah, twenty five euros in the end. And I was just like, that that's the only twenty five euros, something like that, because it was like loads of ivy and bits of wood and just shit detritus from the garden. And it's the first time I've come across that. And I'm kind of like, what are we paying the city for if we still have to pay for this? Like what? When I was in Fert, Nuremberg, even Augsburg didn't push to charge you for recycling, especially garden waste. So I don't know what that's all about. I feel like I'm being switched. Well, it sounds like time to invest in a little compost bin uh, and you can take care of it all in your own backyard. It just, it's always bloody work. Like it's just, People keep saying to me, <laughs> oh, well, you know, you bought a house, so yeah, like it's just work, isn't it? And I'm like, that is a horrible picture of life. Like, it's just everything is work constantly. When is the time to play with my action figures? Never. That's <laughs> that's when. Gutting. Anyway, uh, what I do have in my house, as do you, I'm assuming, Simon, if you haven't eaten them already, is a, a stockpile of Haribo from our adventures in Bonn last week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was an adventure indeed. Um, yeah, still got a fair amount left. There's one that really caught my eye, and it's the one I'm most interested in, but it's also the one I'm most terrified of trying. Mm. Because it could be rough. Is it the uh, Almdudler? No, the Almdudler I think will be okay. Yeah. Like Almdudler's fine. It's not an everyday flavour, but it's the <laughs> no. Haribo ones that taste like cake. Have you not tried them yet? No, I've not tried oh, them. Have you? I've you I, I, I opened all the packets. My wife and my daughter are away <laughs> and I just opened all the packets to have a good bash and see how they went. What was it? We got the gummy bashing that tastes like cake. We've got the pretzel, <laughs> pretzel ones yeah. that had like the Bavarian flag on them, which was obviously we were going to buy those and the Almdudler flavor, which is a soft drink mostly sold in Austria or around the mountains. Mm -hmm. And there was some sour gummies I got as well. I'm not sure if you got those too. I got the sour bats for Halloween, ah. and I learned upon eating one of them, they're licorice. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, and I don't like licorice. <laughs> save, save them for when I'm over. <laughs> Unfortunately, they've already been dispatched to the wife's office. <sighs> so I think they've all been smashed today. 
I did try the birthday cake ones or the cake flavored ones. Mm-hmm. And my wife's assessment was these taste like your vape smells. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, they basically do taste like vape liquid. I mean, it's very sweet and cakey, but it's that kind of cake where you know it's not really cake. But um, okay. they're fine. I mean, they're okay. You'd have to eat a lot of them to get the pure cakey taste. You've never vaped before, so this is your your closest you'll ever get to the vape experience. I mean, I, I have smelt your vape juice, <laughs> uh, and it is it's pungently sweet uh, every single time. I've never smelt it and be like, oh, that's something I can imagine inhaling myself. It's always like honey and banana uh, or something. Honey and banana, yeah. <laughs> Banoffee pie. Yeah, delicious. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. You're a heathen. But yeah, I can't help it. I mean... It was a delight to be in Bonn, especially because we had access to all these different Haribo uh, options that you just wouldn't find mm-hmm. anywhere else. I'm sure they sell an Almdoodler somewhere else I've seen, but I haven't seen a lot of those different flavors. And the listener will get to hear some more tales from our adventures in Bonn because the second part of our Bonn interview or discussion is coming halfway through, I guess, this podcast. Um, so look out for that. But I did I did like it. We went for a nice breakfast and had a look around the city, got a nice photograph with Ludwig van Beethoven, which is what everyone mm-hmm. goes to Bonn for. Lovely guided tour from the producer who was deeply knowledgeable about all these different aspects. <laughs> he knew so much about the city. I was surprised by his depth of knowledge. And if you can't hear the sarcasm in my voice, then you were definitely born in Germany. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, neither of us had to use Google Maps nope. at all. No, not at all. Not at all. We didn't have to guide him back. Although he did, he did know he did know where he's going because, as he said repeatedly last week, it's near the Haribo factory. So we just followed. We just followed the side. Oh, he's given us the middle finger. There, we definitely have goaded the producer into his worst form. Um, but yeah, that wasn't the only place I was visiting last week. I went to Bamberg as well on Thursday mm. for a, a conference for the university. All the English lecturers and. Bavaria gathered together in Bamberg to talk about lunch. The Venice of Bavaria. <laughs> I, kept saying, I was just taking the piss all the time. I was like, you know, they do call this the Venice of Bavaria. And everyone was like, ha, ha, ha. And about the eighth time I did it, like, no one responded. <laughs> we kept crossing bridges. And I was like, you know, it's reminiscent of my time in Venice. <laughs> but yeah, we went to some, uh, I went to a very weird bar. Where they were very, like, it's Franconia, right? So, mm. They were as Franconian as you would imagine. Food was amazing. The beer was great. The people who ran the place seemed to hate everyone and everything about running a bar, and especially mm-hmm. us. And we were like, there was loads of us drinking, and they, they put a sign, just put a sign on the table that said, uh, reserved for 7.45, and we looked at our watches, and it was 7.15. And I was like, oh, right, I guess that's them telling us to leave. Uh, so <laughs> this is a really weird interaction. But mm-hmm. all we could get was, Rauk beer is good, but after about three pints, I want something else. And there was nothing else on the menu. It was just Rauk beer all the way. See, my experience of the Rauk beer is that each one is better than the last. And like, the first one is a little bit of a confusing mm. uh, 15 minutes. But once you push through that barrier, I, I found that it's got better and better. Um, but yeah, my last experience of really drinking a lot of it was Father's Day mm. years ago, 2012. Mm. And I think I had about 12 
Schlenkerer that day, and I loved them all. They were amazing. I mean, it's good, but I don't know. It gets a bit samey after a while. I tried three or four different types, and they were fine. It's not an acquired taste at all. I think it's just a bit of smoky beer. Mm. Sometimes you just want something a little bit different, and when all the beers are that or Weizen, didn't seem like much of an option, really. And given that we're in Franconia, you would have thought, maybe there's another type of beer. Nope, no other beer except the rock beer. <laughs> You're in Bamberg City Limits, that's it. It's the way it is. You've got to eat meat and drink rock beer. <laughs> but yeah, it was lovely. It's a really lovely city. You forget, I think, or at least I do, when it was around the corner for so long and we used to go all the time, mm. but you sort of see it from a different way when you're with locals. So you saw like different side streets and different parts of the city, which was nice. Although we weren't really mm -hmm. there for a tour and uh, there was work to be done, but it was, it was nice. It was, it's nice getting out and about again, you know, seeing the, the lights of Bavaria. Whilst they're on, I mean, we're going to start <laughs> seeing more and more places turning the lights off earlier and earlier. It feels like, yeah. um, we are blessed, uh, in this part of Germany for sure. And indeed the rail network, uh, Falgi N mm. is the largest rail network because it's all like hundreds of districts all over the nation. And the Falgien one is the biggest. Mm. And it does mean with the Falgien ticket, you can go to all these really, really nice places on their day ticket for a very affordable price. Yeah, yeah, the, the buying ticket. Well, it's not even the buying ticket. It's just the Falgien Targus. Right. Um, Targus, and then it's 10 euros less than the buying ticket. Oh, that's nice. Hot tip for anyone that's in the Nuremberg, Ansbach, Bayreuth, Bamberg uh, area. Yeah. yeah, good choices all round. Uh, there was also some mm. good news on the uh, luggage front. Um, I'm not sure if that's Ooh. a front. Yeah, the, um, the listeners will know of my trials and tribulations. And certainly if you follow me on Twitter, me shouting at KLM periodically about <laughs> their inability to give me my luggage. And uh, I'm sure most people will know that I lost my luggage instantly after giving it to uh, the check-in at Munich Airport in the middle of August. And about a week ago, uh, we just got a random phone call on the weekend and they were called to say, oh, we're delivering your luggage. So we got all the luggage back, mostly undamaged. There was a um, half uh, loaf of bread that had rotten quite dramatically, oh. uh, which I had to dispose of. And I was worried because I was like, oh, then it's like going to spread to your clothing. But... It was in a plastic bag, but it still stank. And anything that was next to it was, yeah, not great. But after a wash, it was fine. So it was only my pajamas. So it's only me that. Why are you traveling with bread? Because my wife, right? You know my wife, right? My wife. <laughs> she took German bread. My with her. wife cannot go anywhere without at least <laughs> at least seventeen loaves of something. It's not even that she was going to Britain. If we went to a hotel in another city down the road, if we, we stayed in a hotel in her home village, she would have brought bread with her. My sort of joke with her is she's the bread ghost because when we first got together, <laughs> I'd be sitting with my headphones on playing the PlayStation and I'd just like look up and she'd be standing in the doorway just eating like bread because she was hungry <laughs> and she would just be silent like a ninja. It was terrifying. Um, she still does that occasionally. She, wherever she goes, doesn't matter where she's going, there's always at least maybe a half a loaf of bread and some bread rolls distributed around i don't know why i was carrying it like 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 i was some kind of bread mule but um, <laughs> did you pack your own bag sir i don't know <laughs> bread maybe yes not. i did but the bread isn't mine um so yeah but at least you got a luggage back i'm happy because i got my lovely pink trainers back which i was enjoying if you want to see the lovely pink trainers you'll see a photo on simon's twitter yeah. and you can admire them for yourself i don't care what anyone says um, I did get some weird questions from people on the train back 
and some admiring compliments. That's fine. But yeah, there was a couple of side eye looks. As I say, it's because they're jealous. They're jealous of my pink dress. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just think that's it's, definitely that's the emotion I felt for sure. I was like, oh, oh, I wish I was wearing those shoes. Oh, what what I love about my realization that pink is my favorite color is it's so. If you looked at us, you would be like, that guy doesn't like pink. I guess I look sort of manly-ish, as manly as you can get, I suppose. Big guy, I, pink trainers. Yeah. <laughs> for, for me, it's, it's, it, I, I've known you for years, and I, I didn't see it coming, because normally you're either wearing smart business-style shoes, like Oxfords or something like that, or like nice boots, or you're wearing a pair of like, plain white air force ones or something like that yeah yeah and suddenly you rocked up in these like magenta pink and purple nikes and gotta keep them guessing yeah it, yeah there was a, a moment oh i don't know i don't know much about nick After, <laughs> you know more than most <laughs> So the first Oktoberfest after the pandemic has finally come to a close. And uh, yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about how successful or unsuccessful it's been. Apparently, the numbers for the Oktoberfest were down. I think it was something along the lines of 5 million people attended. 5.7, yeah, I think, is, 5. is the number they produced at the moment. 2019 was 6.3. I think beer sales were down as well. There was uh, mm. 5.6 million litres uh, was drank, uh, and that was down from 7.3 million litres in 2019. A lot of the organisers have complained about the weather, but also that, um, yeah, maybe the, the sort of COVID and, and all these other things, um, the cost of living crisis might have played a part. But still, it's I think roughly it's been a success for most it seems like everyone's had a relatively good time um, for, for the most part, but there's been a lot of quite interesting stories coming out of that. Uh, one of the stories being the uh, increase in the corona numbers, which seem to have skyrocketed unsurprisingly at an event where no one wore masks and it was packed, <laughs> packed into tents. Uh, what are those numbers now? There's something like 700s or something I think they were hitting. It's alarmingly high. Like, I saw a graph that showed like, Germany and then Bayern and then Munich and yeah <laughs> the difference between Germany and, and Bayern is big mm -hmm. and the difference between Bayern and Munich is not bigger mm -hmm. um, yeah it's pretty unsurprising uh, I don't think anyone is even mildly shocked but of course it's disheartening for millions of people in the states who are trying their hardest to to be vigilant mm -hmm. and keep numbers down uh, for lots of visitors and people to be yeah, to do something that's like it's just so obviously a bad idea for covid mm. um yeah being locked up in a tent with a load of drunk people screaming shouting singing it's yeah at the top of their lungs on benches yeah. um yeah. the numbers accordingly are where 77 percent of the visitors apparently came from munich and mm -hmm. neighboring areas but there was a 16% total from people who traveled abroad, and they were mainly from Great Britain and the US. So there's a big US contingent usually goes, but a lot of people from Britain too. So yeah, it, I mean, it's probably to be expected. I kind of assumed it would be very busy, and it does seem that it was busy, but at the same time, it maybe was an initial couple of days of excitement, and then it sort of petered out a little bit as the weather got worse and worse apparently it's the worst weather in 20 years that they've recorded yeah. at the oktoberfest 
I mean, the footage of opening day where people were literally mm. like sprinting out of the gates to try and get the best possible location. Mm -hmm. There was so much joy on their faces mm -hmm. and I kind of had to feel kind of slightly upbeat by that. But yes, yeah, it's, it's not being successful, really. Uh, it's not the remedy the city needs. I mean, you talked about how few uh, litres of beer were sold compared to what was hoped. And that represents like millions and millions of euros mm -hmm. uh, in revenue. When it's not just, oh, a small reduction. It represents like 17 million euros um, in lost sales, which is bad news for everyone from the organisers to the waiting staff to the breweries. Yeah, it's not been the magical solution everyone was kind of hoping it might be there was uh, some disturbing news on a lot of different levels though that was coming out of the vision uh one of the first things that caught my eye and i'll post the link in the in the show notes and this is from a focus.de article uh, and it's a video of uh, one of the bars or one of the beer tents where the barman is pulling out the slop trays essentially with all mm. the the beer and all the other sort of dark water, I think is the term. And he's filling up uh, mass glasses with discarded beer. So that was something that turned my stomach at the very idea yeah. that you, that someone That's would rough. think that that was an appropriate thing to do. It does feel like, I mean, okay, yeah, I can understand that maybe energy bills are going up and there is a lot of more costs uh, incurred by the organizers. But that seems like a step in the wrong direction but it wasn't just that i've, I've read a, a few different articles there's a great article again i'm not sure if it's if it's paywalled but i will post the link and it was a great article but it's disturbing and the title of the article was uh venice arbens volverd danist es nur noch eklig and that translates as when it gets crowded in the evening it's just gross and it's interviews with lots of different people who worked at the Wiesen, and uh, mostly the women who worked in the beer tents and their experience of essentially sexual harassment, uh, in some mm. cases assault. And it's this sort of dark side to Oktoberfest that isn't really promoted. And the disturbing things that I was reading, each section's uh, headed by a quote from the, the person being interviewed. And one of them was, they grab your arm and want to kiss you. I keep getting asked if I want to come up to the room with people. Um, mm. There was another one that was, it shouldn't be normal for someone to say, show me like a part of your body. Um, and there's a lot of like sexual harassment going on. And it's something that I, I wasn't really thinking about that much, but the thing that's being outlined is this, the, the Oktoberfest has become this sort of space where anything goes and people can do what it feel like, especially men, like it's not, it's not people, it's men, feel that they can yeah. overstep the mark because um, there's waitresses. And the things that shocked us were things like colleagues or experienced serving staff telling inexperienced serving staff, oh, you should wear cycling shorts underneath your dindle to stop men mm. like molesting you essentially. And that's apparently really common. But also just like the numbers that were that were being processed, and the article was from the, one of the articles I read was from the twenty eighth of September, and it said that although the, the the numbers of attendees might have been down and the beer sales might have been down, the numbers for people who had been or the numbers recorded for what they call sexual delicaten or sexual offences, they'd risen from 25 to 31 by this point last year, which was around the 28th of September. And in fact, in 2019, there were 45 total 
reports of some kind of sexualized violence or sexual offense committed uh, against people working there or people visiting with 29 arrests and uh th- that for me is just like i don't know i want to talk about it more deeply than maybe we have time or the experience to deal with but it's like this element of people just thinking they can do what they want and it doesn't seem to be just older people it's young people too sexual suggestions inappropriate touching the desire that men seem to have to like just touch women as soon as they're out in a group of other men and uh, there's an initiative called Sikara Wiesen for Mädchen und Frauen which had created a safe mm. space for women and they said that a lot of the people who were coming were like people who lost friends or phones or were dead drunk but 21 women had used that safe space because they'd experienced some kind of sexual or physical violence while at the Wiesen and the shocking thing more than any of that was one of the people working in the tent said, oh, no one told us that this was a thing. No one mentioned it. No one trained us how to deal with it. And it's like, how the fuck is that a blind spot? How is that even possible that they've not been told? Well, I mean, yeah, the Vizan is like, when you look at articles about like going to Vizan, it does talk a lot about flirting and how it is like an opportunity to meet people. But it's the thing that I dislike most about German drinking culture is that groups of lads getting shit-faced suddenly feel totally fine to be like openly sexist and like say wild shit to waiting staff and women in their vicinity the yeah obviously english dickheads do this as well when they're shit face drunk yeah. this isn't just a German problem but it's not something i encounter often mm. in my community but yeah lads in lederhosen when they're shit faced like it, it's kind of shocking yeah uh, so yeah this is really Vizan has this element and it of course they're not going to advertise it because it means it isn't safe for women yeah the police need to do better German dudes need to do better and yeah I say training of staff has to be better that's a fucking horrible surprise Mm -hmm. to be part of your job description Mm -hmm. for not a huge amount of money to be attacked like that apparently a lot of them were saying oh we spend lots of money here and it's something that that of particularly german thing that i've heard before and i've seen when i've been in younger sound in certainly in the east of europe with people where there's certainly young german men upper middle class usually i uh, just feel that they can do what they want because they've got a bit of money in their pocket yeah um britain they have a se- really serious problems regarding like putting stuff in people's drinks and things like that but it's mm. not a competition right it's not a competition for no. what, what's worse or anything it's just all fucking terrible but i think it's one of those things where i remember uh, some of the beer fests after me too there was big signs about this is how we should treat women in this area mm-hmm. and uh, it was noticeable when i went to bird this year that there was one that weren't there anymore and it does feel like th- this needs to be a bigger conversation about like just because you're in a group of guys and you watch the hangover a couple of times doesn't doesn't mean you can just act like arseholes or like uh-huh. i've seen blokes just throwing money at bar staff like they're in a fucking movie or something and i just hate that uh-huh. shit i can't fathom it but i do think it's something that uh i'll be keeping an eye on because speaking to students as well a lot of the students i know don't even go to clubs anymore because it's so prevalent and it's mm. like that's horrible that you can't actually enjoy certain spaces because some yeah. fucking seedy group of blokes can't keep the fucking hands to themselves. Fucking men, man, ruining everything. It's a fucking man problem, and it's something that mm. like, if you see your friends doing that and you do nothing, then you're just as much a prick as the ones who are doing it. As far as I'm concerned, because I think no. it's got to be us that do something about it. Like, no. We've uh, we've obviously already talked about Britain 
uh, and it's sandwich culture. But <laughs> I still want to sort of pick your brains a bit because there's, there's a lot of stuff's happened over the last two weeks that we've not really been able to to cover. And the, Dilly and I shared our thoughts about the Queen and the funeral. And I'm sure listeners are pig sick of me talking about it. So I'm going to make you talk about it, Simon. Mm-hmm. You were there. Yeah. How was the uh, morgasmic period of the Queen's funeral? Did you queue? Were you in the queue, Simon? No, I wasn't in the fucking queue. Like David Beckham, he, no. queued for, he queued for 13 hours, just like real people. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't queue. And that, that instinct did not come <laughs> up in me at any point whatsoever. But yeah, obviously it was, it, was a, it was a weird point because, I mean, we didn't go out a huge amount. It was about spending time with family. But whenever we did go into a town, you would see like displays and shop windows were all like around a portrait of the Queen. Oh, right. Okay. There was three shops in a row that had used the same portraits, which was a little bit weird. Mm. But yeah, there was definitely, an, uh, it was something in the air in terms of like, you need to be showing your respect. Did see one guy in Moulton in North Yorkshire who was like dressed in like mourning like a suit designed to like show his like black tie everything like he was obviously taking it very very seriously We're just like wandering around or? yeah he was just doing a shopping but dressed in like a morning outfit was that on the day of the funeral just no that was three around. days before it was weird it was really really weird and then the funeral was on the monday and that was when i was to be with my father and so, like, we kind of knew we were going to be watching the funeral because it was a public holiday. It was a bank holiday. And so nothing would really be open. And so, yeah, we went and watched the funeral for oh, like three hours, I mm-hmm. guess, probably. And, like, the thing that impressed me the most was the work that the BBC did in terms of filming mm-hmm. and, like, the, the way they showed the event. You didn't see a cable all day. You didn't see a cameraman in the background. It was very, very impressively done. It did make me think, like, which other country could do anything like that in terms of the pomp and the majesty and, mm-hmm. like, the accuracy of that display. And the only country I could think of that could match it is North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a sort of, like, it's an awkward uh, moment when you realise, yeah. like, oh, they're the people that would do the second best. Like, I think it was a very impressively British day. But, yeah, the only country I think that could come close to matching it is North Korea. Other countries just wouldn't care enough, I don't think. And then when she had been taken out of Westminster Abbey mm-hmm. and put in the car, then we went and visited my my uncle and auntie. And then it was just kind of like, suddenly the day was really normal. Like we had cups of tea and coffee and talked about family. And at that point, I knew they had the photo albums from my grandparents who both passed now. And... I asked to see some pictures and so we looked through pictures and found like all this old stuff from my granddad when he was serving in Japan and that was all kind of just nice and nostalgic and normal then we got back to my dad's and then the second half had started and suddenly we're in Windsor at the next service and so we watched that as well I'm not like a hardcore monarchist at all I know that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nick has made his position clear (laughs) over the many times we've talked about the monarchy that he is a republican for me, it's kind of, it's much of a muchness. It's never really directly affected me, but I have gone to a school that is Royal Charter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was started by a king. And so I do have like a certain amount of empathy for it. And if I meet someone who is like a hardcore monarchist, mm-hmm. like, I think that's pretty weird, but I'm not going to like lambast them for that. 
but because my dad knows my position, he was like, well, yeah, I know, you, I know you're not a monarchist, but you're okay watching it. And I could tell that for him, he wanted to like talk it up more. He would have liked to have been in a more home crowd, I guess, mm -hmm. because he knew that if he was like, oh my God, it's magnificent. I'd have been like, dad, like calm down. Mm. And so there were a couple of times where he'd like had a little cry and it was mm -hmm. just like, that's nice that you feel this way, that you're so like touched by this. But at the same time, it's kind of ridiculous. There was a part of me that was terrified that I'd be watching it and suddenly I'd be overwhelmed by you suddenly like, become a monarchist. I'm just like, oh my God, it means something to me. And that didn't happen. That was quite a relief. I think watching it, it's like you knew that it was historic. And yeah, that's being part yeah, of yeah. watching it was like, okay, I take that off the day. Like I've seen it and one day it will be talked about clearly and I'll remember it really well. So that was kind of nice. But it was weird then that like once all this like enforced mourning, I think it was how you described it, was over, the next day it was kind of like everything was kind of back to normal. Yeah, yeah. Like the pictures of like the Queen were gone a to a certain degree. Yeah. And yeah, that was kind of like a weird switch. And obviously like the news coverage was suddenly kind of back to normal you had other stories. And of course, monumental things were happening around this time, especially in Ukraine. And it was really, really nice to feel like, okay, we can talk about other stuff again now at last. You actually felt like you couldn't talk about politics or you, you weren't in a place where you could talk about anything. If it were talking about current events, it would be monarchy focused or? That's how it felt. I yeah. mean, I talked about other stuff with my mum because she is like interested in plenty of other things but when it came to like my dad yeah it was mainly kind of focused around that like obviously we trashed brexit and like talked about the current state of affairs in the uk but when you turn on the tv it was all queen related we did watch the new episode of frozen planet the david attenborough uh, documentary which was like amazing like that was one of the few times where suddenly the tv wasn't about monarchy it was about david attenborough which is would be my vote for replacement of the monarchy. Let's just have him on a pedestal, like hyperbaric chamber protected and yeah, make him live forever. Let's put him in the gilded cage. <laughs> no, I'd be I'd be totally fine with him leading the way. But I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of it, it was weird. Like the first time I heard the new national anthem, like well the old one but back, uh like the the new remix of God Save the King, like that was weird. Didn't feel right. In a way that felt disrespectful to me. Like that at the queen's funeral like she's not in the ground yet and they're already singing god save the king can we just like sing it for her a few more times before she's like literally mm. underground so there were things that just felt weird there were things that were impressive there were things that make you made you proud to be british in a weird way bagpipers I oh think yeah man they were yeah we talked about that incredible yeah and i think for a lot of people it was the first time we're like wow this bagpiping is banging this is really good mm. um and obviously the pallbearers Got, have had a huge amount of, of credit thrown their way because they did an incredible job. There were all these things where it's like, okay, that's really like hats off, like done really well. Obviously it's been planned for a very, very long time, but there were things that they couldn't have like, that they've had to do quickly. And it made you realize that Britain, when it wants to be, can be a hugely dynamic and switched on country. But there are also things that make you think, what the fuck, why isn't it always like this? Like the queue started and suddenly it was eight hours. Suddenly it was 14 hours. And suddenly there were like water stations and people handing out blankets. And it makes you think like there were literally thousands of people sleeping rough on the streets of London every night that get nowhere near this kind of compassion and support. 
like that's kind of heartbreaking. Mm. All the money that got thrown at this event, which of course can be justified, but it makes you think like, why can't we do better on mm. all this other stuff where the visibility of tragedy is kind of swept under the proverbial carpet. London's an amazing city and it's full of amazing people, but there are things that really need to change that and it's not gonna happen in mm. the current circumstances. And then of course, with the new prime minister and all the like mad hat reforms they're pushing out, you're just like, we're nailing this, but everything else is on fucking fire. Mm. And there's no nothing good is being announced. Nothing makes you think, oh, okay, yeah, they got a grip on this. Everything is just like, what? Now that, oh shit. Well, I wonder if it's the same for you. I noticed that, say five years ago, if I criticized Brexit or I criticized the government with certain people who I know, mm -hmm. they would jump to their defense. Yeah. And either they nodded sagely when I would say it last time, like a couple of weeks ago, or they'd say nothing. Yeah. And you're like, that's interesting mm -hmm. that you're not suddenly just coming straight to the defense of this particular point or telling me I'm not British enough or something, which yeah. would have happened previously. But um, I did think it was hilariously funny that the two, this, so there's two British TV presenters in, in the UK uh, who do- Just two. No, no, I mean, yeah, there's, two. there's always two. No, it's every breakfast show is only two people. Um, and they just run across all the different channels. Now, there's, there's two presenters that do the ITV morning show mm -hmm. called, is it This Morning or Good Morning? I'm not sure if they've changed it. It was This Morning. But happy Morning. Happy Good Morning. Britain, Great Britain's Good Morning Breakfast. <laughs> I don't know, whatever it is, right? Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby, I believe is what mm -hmm. they're called. And uh, it turned out that they I, they might have pushed in to the queue. I think they were allowed to jump the queue. I'm not sure if they pushed in, but uh, and yeah. Th this was a, they skipped it. There this is a discussion all the way through because it was politicians who'd done it and MPs who'd skipped mm -hmm. the queue and I understand there was probably security concerns but in this case it was definitely presented as these two pseudo celebrities had taken advantage of their position to mm. uh, jump the queue and there was a there was a big storm and then I think it was on Monday or maybe it's on Sunday I'd seen uh, like a campaign to get them fired like <laughs> to sack them and I was just like oh dear like really like is this where, where it's at but it did say something about how seriously British people do take that like any cue at all. Like one of the most unpleasant realizations throughout my whole trip there was seeing members of my own family having been poisoned by the media in the UK. Really? Yeah. You'd say poisoned? Poisoned. Yeah. absolutely poisoned. Have you got any examples? The thing that they're poisoned about, like they're open about Brexit, like they they all know that it's not going the way that, I, I don't think anyone I'm blood related to voted for Brexit. And, I, and if they did, I don't want to fucking know because it would be, mm. it would be the end Maybe of a, I don't a know, relationship. I don't want to know what anyone's vote was. Whatsoever. I'd be able to hang out with them, but I wouldn't trust them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But two members of my family both voiced anti-Meghan Markle sentiments and like I just couldn't believe it. It was really upsetting to hear because I knew that they're not bad people, mm. but they've had this thrown at them day after day from all these different sources and they've bitten. They've been hooked by this thing. At first I was just like, oh, that is fucking, like I called them, but I called out one of them who I am blood related to. And the other one I was like, okay, fine. You do you, you nutter. But yeah, one of them was my father. And I was just like, what the, f why? It's always got to be an enemy, hasn't there? It's yeah. always got to be someone who's, who's to blame. This line of, oh, uh, she's manipulated him. It's just like, what the fuck? Like he's an idiot. Yeah. Like he wasn't educated in some of the best institutions in the country. 
it's it's really really sad that that is now in my family mm. and i didn't think about it at the time i just kind of brushed it off like that's really upsetting but it's not my job to break them out of this this bubble of the mainstream media or right-wing media but then i started to realize that for my wife this was a much more disturbing realization because my wife and Meghan Markle aren't, aren't similar people but in a weird way there are similarities because mm. she is a foreigner who's married into this family that has like tradition and an institution in mm. a weird way and she was able reasonably to be like what if your family think the same things about me like I'm living in Germany away from my family I have been distant mm -hmm. and she yeah came to us like what if they talked that way about us that mm. I've manipulated you that I've taken you away from the family and that I'm kind of controlling things and for me I was just like there's no way they think that mm. it's, it's absolutely impossible that they think that about you and I, I couldn't be like she could be in that headspace exactly it was a justifiable conclusion to come to because they saw what they were saying about mm -hmm. Megan and they know Megan less than they know my wife but also not much more because we have spent such little amount of time with mm. them and at that point I was like this is fucking intolerable that it's even possible for that connection to be made and to be like yeah I can understand how you've gotten here mm. and so this was the challenging thing about going home after so long I've spent time with my family in person, which I haven't done for years with some of them. And it was wonderful. But of course, you kind of get swept up with it. And I know that if it had been in a different circumstance, I'd be much more attentive to how my wife was feeling. I didn't ignore her on mm. the trip, but in other circumstances, I would have been much more like considerate about how, how she was feeling. And so this trip that we've had has been great for me. But then it's also, it's been, it's been a challenge. It's intense, isn't for it? my wife, yeah, it the is whole, intense. It's really going back and doing all that and bundling it all into a couple of weeks is really, really intense. And I think more so since the pandemic. Spending time with in-laws is never easy. Like my in-law family are wonderful, kind-hearted, generous people who I'm pretty sure have never said a bad thing about me behind my back. But I know I'm lucky. Mm. Most in-laws have standards and hopes that for the person that they marry into. And I'm sure people chat shit. Like, I know what I say about mm. members of my family who I love and who I don't want anything to really happen to. But I've chatted shit mm. about them, so I know they've chatted shit about us. Mm. It's just the nature of chatting shit. In two respects, I'm kind of lucky. First, in the fact that I'm pretty sure all of my family like my wife more than they like me. So that's like a, <laughs> that's like a bonus in one respect. Um, breaks my heart. The other thing is, like... <laughs> I think this comes from school and being bullied a lot as having developed enough of a thick skin to really not care about it. Mm. It takes a lot to push me over the edge. And actually the foreign wife aspect is the thing that that's a hot topic. Yeah, And it doesn't have to be disrespect, but any negative treatment towards my wife elicits a very angry response from me. But luckily that doesn't happen. But I am aware of it. Certainly mm. when she's speaking German or she's speaking to my daughter in German and you'd see people look and I was like, are you going to say something? No. Because if I'd even heard someone say anything, I would have been like, fuck you. Yeah, yeah. Like straight away. And, I, and that's really my, it's partially my problem because it would be full on confrontational. My wife would hate it. But I do feel like super protective. Yeah, I mean, of course you do. Like I think, especially being English guys with German wives, like we know what idiots say about Germans mm. in the UK. Mm. Like it's 
It's all about Hitler. It's all about the war. Mm. It's all that kind of stuff. And it's a totally reasonable thing. I've not had to, as you say, like confront someone about chatting shit about my, my German wife, but I know if they did, mm. I would be immediately enraged mm. beyond belief because yeah, you shouldn't have to justify who you are just because of your fucking nationality or the accent you're speaking with. Mm. And it was an interesting thing because before the holiday in England, we went and spent some time in the Netherlands and on the way back we did as well. And my wife had experienced discrimination in the Netherlands because of being German, because like it's an understandable dislike that people from Holland or the Netherlands have for Germans because of what happened during the war and because of tourism, like taking over certain regions. Mm. You kind of understand why some people are just dicks about it. And so when we're in the Netherlands, my wife was like, can you order? And I was like putting on like a thick British accent being like, good afternoon. Oh, oh my governor. I would really enjoy some breakfast here, my lord. Apples and pears. <laughs> and yeah, like that, like it's a sad when you kind of think yeah. like, oh, my accent might make things less comfortable here. Mm. It's a weird thing being part of like a, a multinational marriage mm. where one of you is going to get treated better because your accent obviously with my accent especially like i sound like well to do and obviously there are people who will meet you and hear your accent and be like what yeah exactly that's, that's not an english i've heard what did, before what did you say <laughs> uh and that's got its own challenges to it yeah but yeah it's, it's it's just it's a tragedy that you have to feel like am i safe to to be myself in this uh -huh. environment but we have found out that my wife can't do a british accent <laughs> try, try as she might she just can't do it like she'll get one word out of five right and then everything else sounds like is that like south african yeah. or like yeah i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't advise putting on an accent to anybody i'm not sure that that is, is the way forward but the uh or is it i don't know well i, I don't know if we finish every podcast and we go Servus la. yeah i mean <laughs> but I, I like we're very aware of the fact that we're not birish in any way shape or form i don't know i mean i can't do any other accent than what i have I could do a British perception of a German accent, which would have no use here. Yeah, let's not, let's uh, not so I dip into that, that well. We, <laughs> maybe for another day. But it's certainly something that I didn't think about prior to 2016. And it mm. is something I think about all the time. Whenever, like, My wife doesn't go to Britain that much. I certainly think about it now that I've got a daughter. My concern is always like, how are they perceived and how are they going to be treated? Yeah. And nine times out of 10. And I think that's because of the part of the world that we go to. Mm. Because Newcastle is generally very open and generally quite welcoming of people and quite a friendly place anyway, that we don't encounter that kind of problem. In saying that though, we did go to Tynemouth Market and we did walk past the stands and my wife was like, why are they selling Nazi memorabilia? And I'm like, because British people be fucked up. Like mm. they got a weird fixation. And she's like, is that a Nazi flag? And I'm like, oh yes. And it's 25 quid. And, <laughs> and it's just, and she, because for her, she's quite ethnocentric in the sense that she can't remove herself from a German mm. perceptions. And she can't, when she sees a Hakenkreuz, she thinks that's illegal. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, if it's illegal and if it's verboten, then it's like really the worst thing that could ever happen. Mm. Whereas there's a nuance in Britain where it's like, does someone want to put that on their wall? Well, if they do, they're definitely a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. I'm not quite sure what you do when you buy a Hakenkreuz flag. I'm not entirely sure why you would want to own one. I do suspect that if you are buying a bayonet and a fucking Nazi flag, then you're probably already a bit far gone, you know? There are interesting people, that are, like Lemmy from Motorhead is one that I always think of because he had a huge like Nazi memorabilia collection. 
but that's it. Memorabilia is the word that he, he would use, I guess, to describe it. Whereas I think if you're a hardcore, if you are a Nazi, then it's like, I have all my Nazi treasures. Yeah, my icons, <laughs> you know, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. Like you see this, I mean, yeah, the Hagenkreuz like gets used in different ways all over the world. But like I remember seeing years ago, there was a chicken place in India and it was just called Hitler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Had, and the eye was the Hagenkreuz. And it's like, they just used... Yeah, that's a catchy name. People people know this as brand recognition. Yeah. Um, and of course, the Americans, especially in like prison tattoo culture, like the SS tattoos, Hagenkreuz, they have like the blood swastika, all these I things. I mean, that's usually used. the Aryan, Aryan Brotherhood, right? It's not the... Totally. Uh, it isn't used and understood yeah. at all in a way that a German would. Mm. Um, of course, it's all fucking disgraceful. Which is mind-boggling. Yeah. It's mind-boggling that you would want to sell it, even as a British person, because they're selling it next to, like, greatest planes of the Second World War and, like, <laughs> yeah, tanks yeah. of the Second World War, and there's, like, little models and barges and pins and stuff. And you're like, well, that's stuff I get. Like, the case where you've got the German helmet with a bullet hole through it just seems a little bit odd, you know? Like, why do you have a Hitler Youth knife? Like, well, yeah. who's getting that and doesn't really make sense? And because there is people who are just deeply, morbidly fascinated, it's that British idea of victorious defeat. Mm. Like, they love the idea of, like, we almost did it, but then we fucked it up. Like, we almost saved the Sedan, and then we all got massacred, you know? And, like, <laughs> it's why you get... SSGB, it's why you get these stories about what would have happened if, if Britain had been invaded and like mm. they, there's like a British horn for for being subjugated. I don't know what it is about British culture, but it's gone goes back a long time in the history. Mm. Why it's why Tennyson's poem about the charge of the light brigade is so sort of celebrated it's the celebration of utter idiocy and shit <laughs> well, i mean it just to sort of bring it back like there are weird things that british people like relish mm. and i think that's that's one of them and that brings me back to the funeral of the queen as well yeah. because there is a real fetish for watching people suffer in silence yeah yeah and these pictures of prince charles walking all day with his family like if someone had like started crying i think edward might have shed a tear during the service. Cameras on him right away. Yeah, exactly. Whereas everyone's like, oh, they're so brave. Oh, the dignity. And it's mm. like, these people have lost their matriarch. Mm. And if they were to cry, it'd be like, oh, mm. a bit emotional, isn't mm. it? But like, everyone's like, oh my God. Oh, there's oh, such dignity. It's like, why the fuck? Is this what we want? Well, why can't you be human? It's so yeah, bizarre. Yeah. It's a really weird niche part mm -hmm. of being British. And it's a whole thing of like, if I ask, how are you? And you're like, actually, things are pretty Fucking bad awful, at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> like a British person is just going to be like shell-shocked mm -hmm. by that kind of honesty. Mm -hmm. You're expected to be like, it's fine. Everything's mm -hmm. good. And we need to be more open as people. And I think we, as Brits living abroad, we have done this. And it's really, really important because that kind of repression of emotion, of dealing with tragedy, leads to mental problems. Mm. This bottling up, like stiff upper lip nonsense that, yeah, got us through the Second World War, but it's also led to a generation of parents who, like, beat their kids mm. and just weren't nice people. Mm. And it's different these days. Like, the way I see you with your daughter, mm. there's no way... I find it hard to imagine your father. No, he wasn't, was, he wasn't like that at all. You know, was as loving and as attentive and as involved. Yeah. But you have now a whole, like, right with me, about children coddled by woke parents. It's mm -hmm. like, it's, it's fucked up. And this, yeah. this part of Britishness has to die 
with the Queen. It's not healthy because it will just lead to more fucking years of conservative government and be like, oh, well, <laughs> it'll, like, get, it'll get better in the end. Would you, would you like to be beaten, sir? Please beat me more. <laughs> Spit in my face. Um, but it's something what you, something you were saying about your dad and, and, and shedding a tear. And I think it is, it's that generation, my parents' generation, your parents' generation, that, that this all had much more of an impact on them. Yeah. Because there were the children of the i mean what they call in america the greatest generation right mm -hmm. or the, the sort of their parents were interconnected with the war or fought in the war or lived through the war or, yeah. or whatever I, I don't want to age your parents at the same rate as i'm aging mine just in case yeah, i think mine are a little bit younger yeah than i think they're a bit younger yeah, yeah. Than, than my parents but that aspect of how important it all was they still got the drip strip strips of empire in the yeah. 60s when they're at school i mean my mum was still telling me that she saw a the map in her classroom in the sort of late 50s, early 60s still had the red of empire on it. Mm. And it's it's one of those very typical things where we talk about the end of empire, but there isn't a line, there isn't a point. No. There wasn't a day where they went, no, empire's over, now let's move on. But it is that consistency of like, well, we've just got to keep moving on. We've yeah. lost the empire, but let's just keep moving on. Like, don't look at it, don't <laughs> talk about it. Don't. And now we'll have these conversations and look at what happens is you have, um, and it's a way you don't have it in Germany. It's what I admire about Germany is, you had this period of after the war where it was like, well, we need to build a government. It's interesting we were in Bonn talking, yeah. talking about this. We need to build a government. How are we going to build it? We're going to have a constitution. We're going to, this is how our structure is going to be. We're going to have proportional representation and a 5% limit. And we're going to make sure that we have a system in place whereby there isn't a, a way that this can happen again mechanically within government. Mm. Then they're like, but let's not talk about it. And they didn't, really didn't. Oh, he had a dodgy past. I know he's the finance minister, but let's not talk about it. <laughs> and it isn't until 68 where you have the buildup of this new generation who are angry about mm. the past, who are learning about the things that their parents did, who are learning about the, the corruption within politics that explodes in this, like, we need to talk about this. Yeah. And it's interesting for a country that doesn't come across as very emotional, that they have this very emotional moment in the 60s. Britain's never had that. No. Britain will never have that. because It's not they, in their interest to confront the reality of what they've done well, at uh, all. It was something I saw the other day. They were talking about, uh, this is, again, this topic comes up in America a lot with reparations. Mm. But they're talking about, um, there was an interview on CNN, and like American news is just the worst, the most binary thinking from the newsreaders, whether it's left or right, it's just the most binary crap. And this newsreader was talking about reparations, the wealth of the royal family, and they basically just offered this question to some, I forget who it was, talking head British woman. And she was talking about, ah, yes, reparations. Well, actually, we should, uh, we should think about, um, when we talk about supply and demand, we should think about uh, the law of supply and demand. And we should talk about who was supplying uh, and the supply chain. We need to go back to the supply chain. And it was actually um, African kings who were supplying the slaves. And I was just like, you've just missed out like the mm. whole like logic of this discussion because you've you got who's to blame that's the thinking is it, the fear in britain is always we're to blame mm. and we can't be to blame because we're the heroes how do we know we're yeah. the heroes world war Two. we're the good guys and that's their end mentality is we're the good guys but, like it's why in the first world war you get this anemic perspective of the first world war the germans did it and you're like no we all did mm. it was a collection of terrible diplomacy bundled in with empire and ego of, of these individual leaders. That's what did it. It wasn't because the Germans were inherently bad and the British were inherently good. Mm. In fact, it was a lot to do with like pure luck in lots of instances. That sort of bleeds into this, what we talked to Katya about, about why Bismarck isn't really talked about that much, certainly in the South, she said maybe more in the North. 
But this idea of like renewal and thinking about the country and thinking about our history, what is the baseline? The baseline in Germany is this thing happened. Mm. It is real. We've tried to confront it. We're still confronting it. And Britain, it's like, keep on keeping on. Don't give in to emotion. And again, that when you were talking about the, the, the Queen's funeral, the bit right at the end, just before she goes into the, um, I was going to say the catacombs, it makes it much more, St. Giles a bit more uh, dramatic, but she was going into the vault. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a moment where I think Prince Charles had to put a flag or something on top of the yep. casket. And uh, the, the commentary was like, oh, you can see the emotion here. Mm-hmm. Like get pure getting the horn for the emotion, like hoping he was going to cry. Yeah. Because then that would be something. Oh, the monarch cry. He's the the woke monarch. He's the new monarch for a new generation. He can show his emotions. And you're like, you just know that that would be the the narrative. Mm. It just feels like it's one of those things that will never be fixed because there's certain sections of society that want to talk about it. There's certain sections of society, both left and right, who want to manipulate it for their own benefit and present a picture of the world. And then there's like historians in the middle just going, no, wait, um, no. hang oh oh (laughs) but it's like the hero thing is is a really interesting part because that is the narrative we're told we're always the good guys but there's that weird like fake relationship with it as well because yeah obviously got the second world war that's a very clear narrative that everyone gets taught about but then i think once you go like really far back people are just like oh it's king arthur it's the knights of the round table (laughs) (laughs) those guys (laughs) we're the good guys they're they're all really cool and it's just like oh this is this is myth yeah. that's like just been tied up in our national identity yeah. like richard the lionheart being lionized yeah yeah by huge swathes of because of the most english of kings yeah right? of course but of course robin hood the kevin costner joint yeah like, that really shaped people like, oh it's sean connery he's a fu- he's amazing <laughs> he's the king. He's the best yeah, king ever <laughs> and yeah it's nonsense it's england germany tonight and yeah. you know there'll be someone dressed up as a crusading knight and it's that Richard the Lionheart image. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, you do know he didn't speak English. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you know, he lived most of his life in France. Yeah. You know, he spent, I think, roughly entire life, six months in Britain. Mm. You know, well, in England, England wasn't, was like the backwater mm. shitty bit of his empire. The bits he liked were in France because everyone was French and they just thought all the English were pure bumpkins knocking about in their hovels. But that's the image you end up with. There's this weird, like, Alfred burnt the cakes, Robin Hood, Richard mm-hmm. the Lionheart, forget a bit, forget a bit, some empire, mm-hmm. um, rule the waves, rule the waves, World War One, World War Two, Queen Elizabeth. Second. Queen Elizabeth now. And, mm-hmm. and that, that's the sort yeah. of general historical knowledge. God save the king. And God, well, I'm not saying it. Um, <laughs> I think I had this debate with somebody. Somebody said, would you say God save the king or God save the queen? And I was like, it's very difficult for me to implore a deity i don't believe in <laughs> to save an institution I, I disagree with like that doesn't make it's any the sense. same as saying abracadabra for you yeah, isn't it? yeah it's exactly that i might as well like say say um i don't know vishnu save harry potter like i mean it's about as meaningless to me as anything else and uh, i don't sing it and i wouldn't sing it it's not something it's not a sentiment that i particularly agree with mm. but and they said, oh, well, then you're not very British, are you? And I was like, how fucking dare they? The thing that really annoys me is I'm more patriotic about Britain than, than uh-huh. most of my friends. That's the thing that gets us, is at least I know. Ask me anything about history and you'll know you'll get a very long answer. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know it. I know what it's about. And I know Serfdom why. Serfdom is not the same yeah. as being patriotic. No. And not yeah, blind all. allegiance to any entity is mm. not the right path. I went to a very sort of religious school 
and was raised like rugby and singing these kinds mm. of hymns all the time. And yeah, it is, it's an indoctrination that happens mm. and flag waving doesn't mean you know mm. what you're actually waving. And this notion that the flag represents like freedom or anything close to it. When you look at all the other countries that have mm. the union Jack in the top corner, I don't think any of them would be like, Oh yeah, that was the moment where we got our freedom. Uh, yeah, it's the antithesis of it for many people. But it's why people like American history, isn't it? Because American history is short mm-hmm. and it's very easy to navigate and go, this is when we did this and this is when we did that. And, and in Britain, it's like, well, we sort of melded into this. Yeah. And then mel- it's the slavery debate's the same. It's like, you can talk about 1807, you can talk about 1833, 34, I forget, when the international slave trade was considered verboten by the British and they went out with the gunboats, which is the bit they always talk about. Mm. Oh, what about the British lives that we, people who died prevent slavery from happening and i'm yeah. like yeah three million slaves between what roughly 1670 and 1807 like let's talk about those lives too mm. you have this process of abolition it isn't nice and tidy and it isn't like mm. it's why you focus on will the focus on william wilberforce and everyone talks about william wilberforce oh what a great legend he was he was the end of a very long process mm-hmm. that was started almost as soon as slavery started and when people talk about like, oh, well, that was just the time. And I'm like, at the time, there was people who hated slaves. Yeah, Do you yeah. know, they hated slavery. Yeah. Do you know who they were? The slaves. <laughs> you know, I get this guess the people who were on the boats were kind of like, this is a bit shit. But you know why we don't know anything about them? Because they didn't write in English yeah. and they weren't given the, the opportunity to write. To be told. Or, and you just had to get maybe one or two slaves who had escaped who would then and did in the the 18th century write about it. But because it's not neat and tidy, it's more complex, and we don't actually, we only understand snapshots of history, you end Mm. up with this situation. Um, But like, Katya sort of was saying something very similar when Katya Hoyer was on, about like, perceptions of history and understanding of history, and that Germany has their blind spots, and Britain has their blind spots too. It's the nature of history, isn't it? Of course, it's written by the victors. Yeah. Uh, And that's, of course, has to be considered in every historical reading that okay there are two sides to the story <laughs> but some of them we're not going to see <laughs> and this is by the guys that had bigger guns yeah yeah <laughs> that's why they always go like oh Brit- women aren't really seen much in history and it's like you know why because <laughs> every time they picked up a quill there was a bloke behind them going no stop yeah. <laughs> make me some pottage <laughs> no okay <laughs> yeah fucked fucked <laughs> I'm, of course, coming to you live from the beautiful city of Nuremberg, uh, and that means we can dip our toes in the sweet, sweet well of FCN news. Things aren't growing very well on the pitch, but off the pitch, there's a good old story to tell. And this is its just delicious. It's a feel-good story for the fans uh, and a sort of insight into how the police could probably do better <laughs> because when the teams travel... Uh, around Germany sometimes they fly if they're feeling not very environmentally conscious Uh, but otherwise they often take their buses and their buses are decorated with all the magnificence of of a Trump campaign bus (laughs) logos everywhere and all sorts of things but tint out windows and so yeah these buses are very very popular and of course there are fans who travel in such buses and so what happened um, was a fan bus from the Aster FCN playing against uh, Kaiserslautern, I think, was the team they were playing against. And on the way to the stadium, the police spotted the FCM bus and escorted it to the stadium. 
it stopped and the driver obviously realised what had happened before anyone else uh, because the police had accidentally escorted one of the fan buses to the player's entrance at the stadium. And um, yeah, the bus driver just put it in reverse, backed out, <laughs> tried to like almost escape from his police escort. So, yeah, that's great. I was I was thinking when when I read the story that they'd been like escorted to the stadium by the police, but I guess it was just like they were directed by the police into the parking area for the players. Well, it says here the the police believed the bus to be the team bus, mm-hmm. so yeah, it was begleited. Uh, so yeah, it could be just be directed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe it didn't have like blues and twos flashing <laughs> escort of like Trumpian scales. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, uh, a load of fans almost got into the player's entrance by accident um, at, the, at the FCN game. So yeah. It's an odd one. I mean, you think the police would be able to pay attention, but then you look at the buses and you're like, oh, I see. They do look very similar. The team bus versus the fan bus. They are basically the same bus. So mm. I found that a bit bizarre. It's a bizarre sort of move. For sure. I, I'm just worried this has opened a door to people being like, this is a way. <laughs> we, we we get in for free. <laughs> and it's like decorate a minibus in Dortmund stripes <laughs> and that. Pull up, pull up, yeah, we're the players. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, maybe given the results currently, maybe the fans playing and the team would make a, a fair difference. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> oh, Savage burns. Oh, Stuart, Stuart's going to kick my head in when he sees me. Yeah. Sorry, Stuart. I apologise. <laughs> and, and say sorry to Heiko as well. He won't be happy either. Oh, jeez. I'm going to have to say sorry to all the fans. I can't go back to Nuremberg. I love that city, but they might beat me to death. <laughs> so this made me think about uh, what has led me to something that happened on Twitter, thinking about security, because mm-hmm. obviously security fucked this one up. Yeah, one of our, our followers uh, on Twitter, uh, Mark uh, in Bremen, uh, was writing that he was at a theme park and then it came out that he was at Hyder Park. Um, and Hyder Park is somewhere I went quite a few times when I was young, living up in sort of Hanover. Yeah, I've been there, I've been there as well, yeah. This, You've been to Hyder yeah, Park? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's lovely. Hyder, Hyder Park is lovely, but it's also the only theme park I've ever been kicked out of. <laughs> <laughs> and this, I, t- I, I told Mark that I'd been kicked out of there and he's like, I'd like to hear the story. Uh, and then Cornelia also said that she would like to hear the story. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to type it on Twitter. This is podcast material. So yeah, here's a story of how I got kicked out of Hyder Park. Sit, sit, sit quietly, children. So in the glory days of when I was living in that area, I was part of like the army brat community, especially in the holidays. And so there were like clubs set up to deal with the children of of the military. And one day we were being taken to Hyder Park, about 30 of us. And over the course of a couple of weeks, I'd fallen in with the sort of the naughty boy gang because I wanted to be cool. And so when we turned up at Hyder Park, one of them had, I don't know what, maybe there's a name for this. Uh, I don't know what it's called, but he'd basically gone into his parents' like alcohol cabinet and taken maybe like 50 mil of every single thing they had and put it in a bottle. Oh, that's solid. That's a solid move. What, what, what would you call I that? I mean, officially you call it something like the Troop of the Colour or something, wouldn't it? Or like a top shelf or something like that. Oh, yeah, I like that. A top shelf, a very much bottom shelf because there was like Harvey's Bristol Cream and Campari. <laughs> oh, and, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was not a sensible mix. There was definitely Creme de Monte, quite a lot of that. <laughs> Just I remember. Of quite in, Just loads yeah, of floaters. Just loads of milky floaters. So we had this like two-litre bottle like this Coke bottle filled with like just this cocktail of every alcohol in his parents' house. And I think between six of us, maybe eight of us, like we 
made haste uh, and smashed through that bottle before we went into the park. 15 minutes later, we're all very drunk and kind of out of control. And we went, we decided the log flume would be a good place uh, to get started. And of course, as is the want of all these theme parks, there are places where you can have your photos taken, like on the big drop or something like that. And one of the guys in our group decided it'd be funny just to like get his dick out. <laughs> and I like, just fully like stood up on the log flume and just like dropped his trousers and lifted his shirt up to his nipples. <laughs> and then we got down and there was just this photo on the screen to him just standing so proudly. Like just, yeah, all in honor. There, nothing covered. And uh, yeah, security were called and we were escorted from the park. How long have you been in the park for? About an hour, maybe. <laughs> Not long. And so we had to we had to find the bus driver and sort of beg to be let on the bus. And then we just had to sit on the bus for like six hours <laughs> whilst everyone else was in the park. Whilst we're all just like burping up horrible concoctions. <laughs> did you learn a lesson? Yeah, I never did that again. I, I, never, I never went to a German amusement park shit-faced on a mix of all sorts of drinks. Um, it is the only place I've ever been ejected from. Uh, so yeah, there you go, Mark. Uh, that's my story of Hyder Park. I want to go back to see if they recognise me and if I'm allowed back in. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure your beard, unless they've got like photo fits of you. I'm sure you'll be able to get through. It's like 23 years ago, so I, I think I'm good. Yeah, I was like racking my brains for when I've been chucked out of somewhere, and it's not that I'm a particularly goody two shoes type. But um, I don't think I've ever been thrown out. I've been caught up in the slipstream of someone being thrown out where like someone th you know has been thrown out and then you go after them and then you turn around, the door's been closed and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I'm going home as well. But no one's sort <laughs> of actively thrown me out of anywhere. I've been responsible for a lot of people being thrown out of clubs before because I was a doorman. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> when they put the smoking ban in place i used to smoke in clubs anyway because i used to go mm -hmm. on the dance floor spark up a cigarette and you just dance on a packed dance floor and then like duck your head down and just take a blast of a cigarette and then you pop back up again and just keep going and i remember my friend saw me do this and he was like oh it's got a great idea and he just lit a cigarette and started waving it around and then like <laughs> seconds later he's being pulled out of the crowd and thrown out and i was just like that's not how you do it was he screaming i'm a smoke machine <laughs> no <laughs> he's like i think it was something like i didn't know the rules and he got thrown <laughs> out but um i've always managed to avoid being in situations where i needed to to be thrown out the best thing about being a doorman i think is when you throw out people who really deserve it so mm -hmm. i understand the doorman's response to throwing someone out for smoking but i always enjoyed that aspect and often when i when i worked i wasn't like an official bouncer per se i never really had a license but that was a long time <laughs> ago i was one of the biggest people in the group so i was usually chosen to sort of and i could talk so I was quite useful, but I was always paired with some brutal looking fucker who had like, scars on the faces. So I didn't need to do that much talking. This is a podcast special in the making. Nick's unlicensed <laughs> doorman years. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like I was working in the Hacienda or anything, but... Um, no, it's still Newcastle. It wasn't, like, it wasn't, yeah, it's... I mean, they were like independent clubs and it was just because they needed someone to work the door and they just needed a body. But um, throwing out angry hipsters is one of the joys of the job. <laughs> like like especially when they were they were sort of well you know i'm i'm all into class warfare and anyone with that yeah, with a plummy accent who was acting the fool uh, that was always uh always a joy to throw them out 
Always wearing beanies, those people. I said, red jeans, you're out of here. <laughs> you can't, no, you wouldn't let me. I wouldn't let you in with red Fuck jeans. Fuck off with your loafers. <laughs> Are those red trousers? Fuck off. Uh, <laughs> but um, I mean, that's the best way to do it is to have some gruesome looking person standing next to you because they can do all the heavy lifting. But yeah, so I'm obviously a good boy and you're a terrible, terrible drunken i was just party to the event like <laughs> a bigger boy did i it. did not expose myself in public it wasn't me it was a bigger I'm, boy <laughs> yeah i'm far too much of a prude servus <laughs> zusammen servus hallochen that brings us to the end of the show we're off to smash some lovely bags of haribo if you're enjoying the podcast why not give us a rating on itunes it only takes a minute and really helps us we are also hungry for spotify stars I'm hungry so chuck some of them delicious stars on there nom 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 retweet us share a link or post with the hashtag Deckers from home or lowercase on twitter or instagram you can also support our lovely little podcast by going to ko-fi.com forward slash Deckers from home and contributing to allow us to have even more haribo mm, yum 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 Haribo. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home, and you can tweet me at 40% German. We've also got a new email address. It's totally on brand, baby. You can also get us (laughs) on decadesfromhome at gmail.com. So just try it out. Just email us. Just say hello. Go on. It's uh, it's new. It's got a very empty inbox. So fire <laughs> some emails my way well, and Simon's way. If you have time, take a look at 40percentgerman.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and bis zum nächsten Mal. Tschüss. Ciao mit Frau. <laughs>